Good morning, you're listening to WTUL New Orleans News and Views. Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, there is the fact that back in February, Donald Trump was saying one thing to the U.S. public about the coronavirus while saying something else entirely in late night calls to a once hotshot reporter. And there is the fact that the reporter chose not to share that information with the public until his book was ready to sell. Combined, those facts go a ways towards explaining the particular coronavirus nightmare the U.S. faces, with a president who says and does whatever, public health and humanity be damned, and where there should be a vigorous principled check on that, a press corps that can't seem to remember whose interest they're meant to represent. We'll talk about seeing around the limitations of corporate media's storyline when it comes to vaccines and treatments for COVID-19 with Peter Maybarduk. He's director of the Global Access to Medicines program at Public Citizen. They have a new report about the impact, so far, of Gilead's monopoly control of the possible treatment drug remdesivir. Also on the show, corporate predations on public health police killing of black people, and abuse of those protesting those killings, overt GOP efforts to interfere with the vote, environmental protections gutted, millions of people out of work and facing eviction, while billionaires get richer. Everywhere you turn today, there is a reason to protest. And calling your congress members is crucial, but if it were enough, well, we'd probably be done. But as more and more people decide they have to speak up, show up with others in the streets, that it's not just meaningful but necessary, they are met with tear gas, rubber bullets, truncheons, and the specter of being carted off in unmarked vans or facing felony charges that will upend their lives. It looks like law enforcement being themselves lawless, but in fact there is a connection underexplored, between brutish police responses to peaceful protests and a history of Supreme Court rulings around the First Amendment that you thought you knew. We'll fill in some missing history with constitutional law attorney Kia Ranama, author of a recent article titled How the Supreme Court Dropped the Ball on the Right to Protest. That's all coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Donald Trump says the U.S. won't participate in the Vaccines Global Access Facility, or COVAX, whose stated aim is to speed vaccine development, secure doses for all countries, and distribute them to the most high-risk segment of each population. Global cooperation in the face of a global pandemic might make sense to some, but a White House spokesperson told the press the U.S., quote, will not be constrained by multilateral organizations influenced by the corrupt World Health Organization and China, close quote. But when it comes to possible vaccines and treatments for coronavirus, Trump's jingoistic sociopathy is not the only obstacle between science and public health. Peter May Barduk is director of Public Citizens Global Access to Medicines program. He joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Peter May Barduk. Good to be with you. Well, starting with vaccine development, how meaningful are Trump's isolationist protestations? We know sometimes he mouths off, but it doesn't translate to much. But could this impede Americans' access to a vaccine? Well, it impedes the world's access to a vaccine, and it's massively consequential in that sense. And it could extend the pandemic. So that's obviously bad for people living in the 
United States. This is a time when U.S. leadership is absolutely critical in order to help the world make vaccines, get enough vaccines for the world's people and not see a delay of many years in access in low and middle income countries, for example. And of course, the Trump administration, as you said, is throwing that to the wind. And the consequences will be a global vaccine apartheid. Consequences will be many millions of people around the world and the most vulnerable communities not having vaccines, safe and effective vaccines when they need them. And communities that are already hard hit or already suffering from poverty or political instability, those situations getting worse and the consequences sort of amassing for years. So the lack of cooperation here, it it also accelerates the race, right? Trump is adding to the tension in the sense that it's every country for themselves and to have high income countries buying up limited doses of vaccines and not looking at the cooperative solutions, not only to distribute equitably the uh, vaccine doses that we will have to end the pandemic faster and take care of the most vulnerable people and make sure healthcare workers have vaccines, but also neglecting solutions that might help the world manufacture more vaccine doses more quick, quickly through cooperation, public production, technology transfer. Instead, it's every country for themselves and also each corporation entrusted to sort of act in its individual profit interests. And we're just handing out grants to the corporations and hoping that that solves the pandemic, which is no way to proceed. Well, yeah, some news media have pointed to Trump's claims that a vaccine could be ready by Election Day as a troubling indication that the process could be polluted by politics. But the same outlets see nothing at all worrisome about describing AstraZeneca, for example, as being a front runner in the race for a COVID-19 vaccine, you know, that a desperately needed medicine should be the spoils given to the lucky victor of an each against all competition is just, you know, that's how you do healthcare for U.S. news media, it seems. That's nature's way. A race is a bad metaphor, of course. It's just all people against the virus. So that's unfortunate. Yeah. Well, as we move from possible vaccines to treatments for COVID, we remember that, you know, America firstism isn't the only problematic thing, isn't the only villain of the piece. When we last spoke to you in May, you were talking about remdesivir, a drug that had shown promise against COVID. And the CEO of Gilead, which makes remdesivir, was saying that he was humbled to be making it and he was talking about collaborative efforts. What's the update there? Remdesivir is the first experimental treatment approved to treat COVID. Of course, we now know that steroids that have been on the market for a long time are also proving useful. But remdesivir has a big market, and there are hospitals and states that want it to shorten hospital stays. It's not yet proven to save lives, but it can reduce the length of hospital stays by some days which is important in reducing hospital burden and keeping our health facilities running as efficiently as possible. But cities and states are experiencing shortages of remdesivir. 38 hospitals in 32 cities in 12 states have reported shortages of the drug because Gilead is not making enough to meet demand. Gilead has a monopoly on the drug because of the government-granted patents and exclusivities, So despite the fact that there are sources of generic supply, including a company called Beximco and others that could be getting into the market, they're precluded from getting into the U.S. market because of monopoly. So monopoly is leading to a shortage of the drug, but also Trump's Health and Human Services Administration has failed to allocate the drug rationally. We ran an analysis with all the state's remdesivir data and HHS remdesivir allocation data, built our own database and found that states that had a bit larger pandemics and more hospitalizations were nevertheless receiving less remdesivir. Well, we do know, actually, that states that reported directly to the White House, governors that said to the White House, we need more remdesivir, got more remdesivir. And so, like, politics played a role, and unfortunately, HHS's own stated criteria of allocating this drug according to hospital burden was not followed because of that insider track. Now, this is all concerning for us, both because of what it means for this particular drug, but if we can't get our act together, if we can't deal with the problem of pharmaceutical monopolies, if we can't deal with the problem of politics influencing health criteria, 
before there is a safe and effective vaccine, then we can see that we're in for a world of a world of hurt. Things yeah. could get worse. Well, let me ask you: Can we ask how a drug developed? with public money can actually be in shortage to begin with, or is that too communist? I mean, didn't millions of dollars of, as the media like to say, taxpayer dollars go into developing remdesivir? That's right. At least $70 million. The federal government was a partner in the development of remdesivir from early days. Remdesivir was first developed as part of a suite of candidate treatments for hepatitis C. Gilead made about $200 billion globally off its hepatitis C drugs, was later uh, tested against uh, Ebola uh, in, in cooperation with federal scientists. And now finally, NIH is running clinical trials to move remdesivir forward today. But yeah, there's production shortages. And it's not necessarily outrageous on its face that Gilead wasn't making enough to meet initial demand. It, it's a pandemic. Everybody is sort of trying to get up to scale But it is very unfortunate that the public is constrained from producing more because only Gilead is allowed to produce it. Right. Well, I worry, I guess, about the presentation of the vaccine as a kind of holy grail, as though it will magically put all of this behind us or as a way forward, you know, that will just kind of pandemic vaccine, pandemic vaccine. Obviously, as you're saying, as lots of folks are saying, this is not going to be our last public health crisis, you know, so we have to be looking at the processes, we have to be looking at the systems that are in place. I've seen a lot of breathless stories on the clinical hold on the AstraZeneca study because one participant got ill, you know, lots of lots of coverage. What does that mean? What does that not mean? I guess I wish some of that airspace would be given to these questions that you're bringing up about what is our whole process about distributing life-saving medicine and what's in the way of that. Yeah, and as you say, first there'll be the issue of making sure a vaccine is safe and effective. And it's very important that we get all the phase three clinical trial data in having a misfire unsafe vaccine would be a catastrophe. So as much as we're in a hurry to get safe and effective vaccines to the world, first we've got to prove they're safe. But once there is a safe and effective vaccine on the market, it may still be the case that the first vaccine is not the best one. It, it may only prevent COVID or, or limit transmission for a limited period of time. It may require multiple doses. Some of the vaccines in development require cold chain storage that will be hard to deliver to remote areas. So There are going to be multiple candidates and may take time to sort of get the right candidates out there. And we just have to be doing everything we can, both to sort of manage the pandemic meanwhile and also deliver great volumes later on. But as you say, we can't just sit around and wait for a silver bullet. Like we have to be taking the testing measures now and recognizing this is going to be a challenging process that's going to be with us for a while. And not everyone's going to get it at the same time. The consequences of that could be very bad, but they can be mitigated. Let me just ask you finally, in terms of things that media could be putting their lens on, you know, we're not all scientists. We can't all interpret data necessarily, but we are all political actors who have some role in demanding transparency from our government and calling for access for information. I just wonder if you could turn reporters' attention to something, what would you have them be paying attention to as we go forward? Technology transfer or the concept of a people's vaccine, that a vaccine can be a public good. While only you or I can take any single given dose of a vaccine, all of humanity can benefit from the technology underlying that vaccine, and we can teach the world to make it. I'm not naive about that. There are massive technical challenges to producing new vaccines well, but right now we're simply being deferential to the exclusivities, the confidential information, the patents, the monopoly control of these vaccines by individual companies who are all benefiting from public funding anyway, rather than saying, what's the best technology that we as a people have and how can we get to scale as quickly as possible as one world? And if we don't do that, the rationing is going to be very severe. And I I think there is you know, underreporting on the possibility that we could expand production capacity beyond current plans and the consequences of not doing so are going to be, you know, it's going to be one of the great humanitarian catastrophes of our time. And we're going to be responsible for reporting out to the next generation how we let so many vulnerable people around the world 
suffer because we weren't imaginative about this moment, because we didn't grab the power of the U.S. government or global production capacity and say we can rise to meet a scientific and technical challenge. We're simply being too deferential to some of the moneyed interests that are at stake, and it's an especially dangerous time for that way of thinking. We've been speaking with Peter May Barduk, director of the Global Access to Medicines program at Public Citizen. You can find their work, including the new study on the mishandled distribution of remdesivir, online at citizen.org. Peter May Barduk, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for your reporting. The cop yanking down a protester's mask to pepper spray them in the face most likely isn't thinking, well, if it comes to it, I'm pretty sure John Roberts has my back. But Supreme Court rulings do form part of the backdrop, the climate in which police officers feel comfortable doing such things. The system has their back, and the Supreme Court is part of that system. Surprising, maybe, as many people protesting may believe that ultimately the legal system supports them in the form of the First Amendment. As our next guest explores in a recent article, it's a bit more complicated than that. Kia Ranama is a constitutional law attorney as well as a writer. His article, How the Supreme Court Dropped the Ball on the Right to Protest, appeared recently in Politico. He joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Kia Ranama. Thanks for having me, Jane. Well, let's leap right in. We tend to toss around the term First Amendment as though we knew exactly what it meant. But when you look at it, the First Amendment breaks things down in a way that people might not think about, but that has proven meaningful. Would you tell us about that? Sure, yeah. So one of the main reasons I was interested in writing about this was that I'm genuinely very interested in these constitutional rights that I like to say are kind of like phantom limbs in the sense that Americans kind of sense their existence. They go about their lives thinking that they have certain rights. But as you mentioned, in a lot of these instances, the legal backdrop that's been offered by the courts has actually gone the other way and have diminished a a lot of these rights to a point where they're almost uh, non-existent. I feel like the right to protest today, at least, is one of those rights where most Americans believe that they have a very robust right to protest. And if you ask them if they know about First Amendment, they would probably say, oh, this should come from, you know, the right to peacefully assemble as it's listed in the First Amendment. But as I mentioned in the in the piece, the courts haven't felt that way necessarily. And over the past half century or so, they've pretty much diminish the right to assembly to a level where it's provided, as you mentioned, the the backdrop for all of these things that people are observing in the news these days that kind of is offensive to them about how protesters' rights are essentially stepped on. And they seem to be shocked to see how much power and control the police officers have to essentially interrupt and interfere with peaceful protests. Well, let's talk about the founders, if we can go back for a minute. I mean, the First Amendment distinguishes between freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. They're two separate things in the amendment, and presumably that's because they knew there was something different about them. Right, and I think there's enough evidence to say that the founders who supported adding the phrase right to peaceful assembly, separate and distinguished from the right to free speech in the First Amendment, thought about it that way. They certainly thought that there was a difference between collective speech as it would play out in a public platform in the form of a you know street protest or a rally than individual speech. So they wanted it to have its own listing in the First Amendment. As history unfolds, obviously, a lot of Supreme Court doctrine and jurisprudence ends up being framed by accidents of history. And the progressive era in the 1890s, 1920s, happened to be a very important time frame for this right. There was a lot of labor unrest in America during the progressive era, and a lot of labor organizations picked up going to the streets, having their members armed. And that was a moment in American history where the courts, by this accident of history and what was the demographic of the people who were on the court at that time, they took a huge step backwards. 
and they essentially said that they thought the right to peaceful assembly in the First Amendment doesn't necessarily give a blanket protection for protesting in the streets. They defined it to protect ancillary rights, like the right to association and later on lobbying and all of these things that people wouldn't necessarily naturally associate with the right to free assembly. And they decided to relegate the conduct of protesting in the streets to freedom of speech. They essentially ended up saying, we're going to treat this as a kind of individual speech. And since then, since the right to protest has been relegated at subsumed, they've even refused to develop its own legal standards for it. So a lot of the police conduct that takes up the news headlines these days, there are lawsuits going on with a lot of organizations like Black Lives Matter and ACLU, but even the litigators in these cases know that there's a complete void. I mean, the court has even refused to fashion concrete legal standards about what the rights of the protesters are. Right. And the path that rulings and conversation and discourse around freedom of speech have taken and that of freedom of assembly have been divergent to the point that, as you explain in the piece, you know, when we talk about a chilling effect, the court has acknowledged that when it comes to speech, but not when it comes to assembly. Right. And I think this is one of those gaps that would make sense to most people. I mean, when a lot of the coverage in the news about the police conduct and show of force A lot of these bother people because they think it seems like the police are just trying to create an atmosphere of fear. Mm -hmm. The tactics are draconian just to essentially send a message to people who would go on the street that your conduct is going to receive a really harsh reaction. Right. Maybe you should stay home. You should stay home. Right. Yeah, you should stay home. And as it happens with individual speech, the courts have actually tried to find a solution to this, which is you refer to it, the chilling effect standard. They've said essentially the government doesn't necessarily need to prevent you from saying something for it to violate your right to individual speech. It's enough that they do something that might put you in fear of speaking about something, even if they don't have the intention of punishing you. It's enough for that to violate your freedom of speech. So the example I would give is like, if today the U.S. government were to say, you know, we're going to survey social media accounts and we're going to see who's talking positively about Antifa or this organization and that organization. And let's say the government claims that we're not doing this to stop anyone from speaking in those terms. We just want to gather demographic information. So that wouldn't necessarily stop anyone from speaking on the subject online, but it's, it would be unconstitutional under the chilling effect standard because it will reasonably put citizens in fear of saying something because they would say, well, the government is monitoring my speech, even if they're not going to stop me. I'm afraid of the future consequences. And I feel like that is a standard that, and its face, could reasonably be extended to the right to protest, essentially, if the courts were to stay true to their words. Because it's reasonable to see or conceive a situation where a lot of people who would be future attendees in these protests are reading all of these news about, you know, permanent injuries for protesters that have attended these rallies and have been subject to crowd control tactics or uh, surveillance tactics, things that will essentially have an impact going on after the rally in your life. And they could very conceivably create an atmosphere of fear where a lot of people who would potentially attend these rallies or events in the future would just not do so out of the fear of its consequences. Or, for example, things like the Tennessee new law that's going to categorize some protesters, those who camp out, as felons, you know, so they're going to lose their voting rights in the future. You know, right. they're, they're not really trying to leave any mystery here. You know, well, well, finally, I mean, going forward, we see the voids, But what needs to happen and what sort of case could bring about the changes that would be helpful or or what do we do shy of the Supreme Court to bolster this right to assembly? I think journalists actually play a huge role here. One of the most common comments that I received to the piece was that a lot of people were saying, well, how could you say this? A lot of these protests are, these are riots or they're not peaceful. And I think journalists have a role here in doing a better job of investigating, you know, I cited to a independent study from ProPublica in the piece, which showed instances where harsh police tactics were 
directed at isolated individuals at times where the crowds didn't seem to be rowdy at all. And harsh police tactics essentially ended up escalating the tension between the police and the crowd. I think it's very important for the media and journalists to be cognizant of those scenarios, to shed spotlight in these situations and say, well, here are the examples of cases where we can clearly see that the police tactics and the crowd control tactics contributed to escalating the situation. And it's important to not just take the cameras and film everything once, you know, everything is escalated and the both sides are obviously reacting to a more tense situation. Documenting that, it's also important for the journalists to try to trace individual police behavior that they see as unacceptable to the police precinct policies. I think the courts could definitely use the information that the journalists can gather in these situations by going to the police precinct, uh, demanding access to the training records that they have for their police pop, uh, for their police officers. What is your established policy for crowd control? How do you train your officers to engage with the crowds? When do you allow them to use rubber bullets or tear gas or heavy weaponry? And if the journalists can get access to those records, I think the courts are going to have a lot easier time reviewing these cases because it's easier for them to review established policy, a concrete established policy of a police precinct and say, this is clearly unconstitutional. Whereas if it's a police officer, a lot of times the courts just shrug these away and say, you know, this was just one police officer mm-hmm. acting on his or her own accord. And it doesn't flow to the police department. So it's, it doesn't necessarily need our voice or it doesn't need our time to go in and deal with the department as a whole. I think the media and the journalists can play a very important role here in essentially clarifying the landscape for the courts. We've been speaking with constitutional law attorney and writer Kia Ranama. You can find his piece on how the Supreme Court dropped the ball on the right to protest on politico.com. Kia Ranama, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks very much, Ian. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on FAIR's website, FAIR.org. The website is also the place to sign up for FAIR's newsletter, Extra, or our Action Alert Network. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Papa loco, who seven? On a poté, nouvelle baïagwe. Papa loco, où se va? Wapousse n'allé, nous se papillon a poté, nouvelle. Et tout ça qui dit bien, j'aime la Et tout ça qui dit mal, j'aime la Papa loco, où se vende, où a poussé ma nous c'est papillon a porté
performing there was no different uh, the men was the world but in Haiti they did start earlier in this country before the United States I spent 65 years in the United States and I bring my heart with me and I said time for me to go and help Haiti This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman, with Juan Gonzalez. The majority of Central American refugees and immigrants to the United States come from just three countries—Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador, which are the same three countries the United States intervened in during, among other decades, the 1980s, on the sides of military governments and paramilitary death squads that killed tens of thousands and, in the case of Guatemala, hundreds of thousands of mostly indigenous people. In El Salvador, many soldiers responsible for carrying out the notorious 1981 El Mazote massacre, in which nearly a thousand unarmed villagers were killed, were elite U.S. trained forces. Between 1980 and 92, the U.S. sent over $4 billion in economic and military aid to El Salvador's government, nearly $1 million a day. Well, today we follow the story of one man and his family, and why he says the story of El Salvador is the story of the United States. Roberto Lavato is an award-winning journalist. He's just published his memoir, called Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs and revolution in the Americas. He's joining us now from San Francisco. 
One of the revelations in this book, the award-winning journalist Roberto, was a part of the FMLN, which is now a political party in El Salvador, and was a ruling party in El Salvador, but was a guerrilla movement that took on the military and paramilitary death squads. Um, and Farabundo Martí, for whom it was named, uh, actually was imprisoned a number of times, was imprisoned in the United States at well, as well, at the San Pedro detention um, <laughs> facility, which uh, Roberto will tell us about, and came out of the Anti-Imperialist League of Latin America. The equivalent in the United States, the Anti-Imperialist League, included Mark Twain, Upton Sinclair, Diego Rivera, and Albert Einstein. Roberto Lovato is a poet warrior. Roberto, tell us about this tradition. Well, Amy, you know, uh, one thing you learn in struggle under a great uh, crisis and adversity is how do you sustain struggle or become victim or not and not become victimized? And I learned in the course of writing the book and excavating my memory that one of the things that sustained me was poetry, was music, were murals, paintings, artists, creative people coming together to literally bring revolution into reality. You even had organizations in El Salvador, political military organizations founded by poets. So, you know, I there, there's a long tradition of this in Latin America where the distinction between poetry and politics isn't really like we have it here where there are these boxes, with the exception of people like Audre Lorde or uh, Adrian Rich and, and and June Jordan, who who I, I learned from at Berkeley, but uh, so I, I see myself and I see the book in this tradition, and I want to pipe it into the United States because I don't think right now we have the political culture we're going to need to face the challenges of our this epic moment, like not just Trump and and the and the ascent of fascism here and worldwide, not just the decline of the economy and the continued neoliberal domination or the, the, the kind of the fascistization of and the militarization of the police. Um, even if we get through that, we're going to have to face climate change. So to face all of this, we're going to we're not going to Democrat or liberal or prog even progressive our way out of this. I don't think I think we're going to need something a little more stronger, a little more millenarian. And that's where the revolutionary sensibility comes in, Amy. I think that and I, and, and I, I, I try to capture it in the book in terms of the revolutionary spirit of the Salvadoran people that's hidden behind images of gangs and, you know, sound bites of suffering children or pictures of, you know, pain, pain stricken moms. So uh, the, the Port Warrior tradition is it, it, it's it has to be excavated uh, in 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 Latin America and here we have people warriors here, but we just don't know it. I was wondering if you can talk about the trajectory and the connection between the militarization of police here and the U.S. involvement in—now, again, we talked about in part one of our conversation, but the U.S. intervention in three countries—the Northern Triangle, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras—back 40 years ago. These are the countries that have the massive outflow of migrants into the United States. Uh, the U.S. supporting the military death squads and the military regimes uh, at the time of the Reagan era, for example, that led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of mainly indigenous people in these three countries. You don't see this outflow of migration from Nicaragua, from Panama, from Costa Rica. Talk about U.S. intervention and how it shaped what is happening today. Well, yeah, definitely, Amy. And it shaped not what happened, just what happened, but what's happening here now. And this is through a mechanism that I call the circuits of counterinsurgency policing, following people like Stuart Schrader and others who have looked at, like, the militarization of policing really effectively. And so I I remember seeing, you know, there were—, there were um, uh, military trainers sent by the U.S. to El Salvador, and 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 they were there training the Atlacot Battalion and the other murderous battalions responsible, for example, for the El Mosote massacre, where I've seen the bones of the children that they're still kind of processing in the forensics labs um, 30 years later. Um, and so, 
uh, you know, a thousand people were approximately a thousand people were killed. More than half of them children under 12 and more than half of those kids under six years old. And when you this talk about military... El Mazote of 2000, of um, 1981, the, the killing, yeah. the military killing of up to 1,000 uh, Salvadorans, talk about the U.S.-trained soldiers that were involved with this, and especially for young people who don't understand this history. It starts for them at the border. And why are people trying to come into our country, they may say? But talk about that connection of the violence that um, was connected directly to the United States. Yeah, the, so, so the, 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 the U.S. trained some of the most murderous battalions in the Americas, like the Atlacat Battalion that perpetrated El Mosote in December 1981, uh, and almost a thousand people killed, most of them children under 12, half of those children under six years old. And so you're naturally, you had that was the first, uh, the, uh, one of the first, and then you had others similar with 500 there, here, uh, 600 there. Whole towns wiped out, mostly elderly people. I mean, tens of thousands of people killed. Most of them, 85 percent of them killed by their own government, according to the United Nations Truth Commission. So these are the conditions under which people migrate. They don't migrate because of the American dream, which is now thoroughly dead. They migrate, in the case of El Salvador in the 80s and 90s, because of the war and the aftermath of the war, the destruction of the economy, and, and, and this circuits of counterinsurgency policing, where the trainers that went to El Salvador after the war came, guess where? To your local police departments like LAPD, Seattle, and others to train police in counterinsurgency policing. And I've got quotes in the book about people that have received training from folks that were in El Salvador and other, and other parts of Central America. And, and, and so you see the militarization of police begin and to be theorized and then practiced after El Salvador in 92. And then after that, William Barr then deploys all these FBI agents away from foreign threats to focus on gangs, beginning the gang war, and then sending the counterinsurgency police of LAPD and the INS to create and deport the violent you know, gang problem to El Salvador, problem uh, to El Salvador. And then after that, they send kind of this new counterinsurgent policing model to the new Salvadoran police force established after their peace accords. And so you see, Amy, there's like this circuits of, of policing that when we talk about gangs, we don't hear any of that. But we have when we talk about gangs, we have to talk about policing. And so there's no coincidence, Donald Trump, right before Portland, had a press conference in the Oval Office uh, around MS-13, right? He, he and William, and who was next to him was William Barr. 30 years later, there's the avatar of William Barr, once again, helping militarize our police days before border patrol, militarized border patrol of the BORTAC, uh, you know, the paramilitary units of the border patrol picked up protesters in those images, those horrific images we all saw. I see that, and I saw El Salvador and the Salvadorization of the U.S., that's why I came out with my book, and because I want to see a Salvadorization of, in terms of a country where one of every three people was organized against a fascist military dictatorship. I'd like to talk again about what it means to unforget in every sense of the word. And your point that you raise at the beginning of the book, the machete of memory cuts swiftly or slowly. Unforgetting makes us hack at ourselves. It chops up our families. It severs any understanding that epic history is a stitching together of intimate histories. Take it from there, Roberto. Yeah, that, that doesn't even sound like me, man. I don't know. That guy sounds better than me. But, um, you know, but that's the persona you do adopt as an author. I, I wrote that because I realized after doing all the research of my family, my dad's secrets— my family secrets, the violence, the crime, the the underworlds. It's like, wow, this is an epic story that the Salvadorans have. And we, we, we don't know any of it. I didn't know any of it. So how is the audience or anybody else going to know about it in the English language? But even in El Salvador, like 75 percent of Salvadorans uh, in a poll said that they didn't even know about La Matanza. So unforgetting is a as much an individual as a, as a political act. 
and a and a, and a collective act of not just remembering, because remembering is just bringing things up. Unforgetting for me is a process of bringing up and raising up the memories, the people, the forgotten people, and, and the stories that the powerful would have us forget, right? Unforgetting is an act of a, a, a liberatory act more than anything else, because you don't un, you don't get a Donald Trump without forgetting. You don't get a Barack Obama without forgetting. I mean, when I went to these immigrant prisons in South Texas, I wasn't visiting children separated by their, from their moms or children imprisoned in these horrific jails or children caged by Donald Trump. They were caged, imprisoned, separated by Barack Obama. And the cages were mass produced by Jay Johnson, his head of Homeland Security. So, uh, you know, I... I we we have to. You know, a lot of people are uncomfortable with saying that Barack Obama. They're happy to say Trump is a fascist when he cages children and does all these horrific things. But when Obama does it, there's somehow an excuse. And you were I, early I was, on talking about Obama at the time, as you were saying, he was building the structure, the foundation, uh, as many in the immigrant community, his even his immigrant rights allies, Obama's allies, called him the deporter in chief. Yeah, I, um, Amy, one of the things I love about you and your show is that you give space to things that are forgotten. One of the things that I, I did on your show, uh, one of the first people that did it on national television was to start talking about what Bar Barack Obama was doing with things like something called 287G and, and, and secure communities. I don't know if you remember that, Amy, but um, that was the first time in national television somebody was actually talking about these issues that turned Barack Obama, who promised to undo these programs, into the deporter-in-chief that ended up deporting three million people, that ended up caging, instituting mass caging of Central American children, uh, mass separation by the thousands of children, not as a policy, but as a practice. Trump tried to make it a policy. Um, and, and doing uh, and jailing hundreds of thousands of innocents under cover of what do you call it? and it, we we have bad signs today in the news when uh Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are announcing that they're bringing on Cecilia Munoz Obama's top latina who gave a latina immigrant rights face to all the horrific things that Obama was doing under cover of si se puede so uh we have to unforget things like Cecilia Munoz and Barack Obama as on we, immigration. As we wrap up this interview, what surprised you most, Roberto, writing your own memoir? Uh, what surprised me most was the power, the, the, the power of the sublime. The, the, what surprised me most was the strategic value of the sublime and the beautiful. I didn't know that I could do what I did in that book. I know there are things that are sublime and beautiful in there because I put my full heart into it. And and I didn't know that I had that in me, to be quite frank. I surprised myself. And I, I had the love and support of all of these people all over the United States and in Central America uh, rooting me on to do this. And I didn't I didn't realize that that's that the sublime and the beautiful had had been what one of the things, along with love, that carried me through the journey of intense trauma that I inherited, of the intense trauma I saw in the war, and of the intense trauma I saw after the war, and and, and that I'm still seeing today. And so, uh, you know, I, that was the biggest surprise, was the astonishing power of the sublime and the beautiful that we're going to need to face the challenges of our time. Roberto Lovato, an unforgettable book. Yes, the award-winning journalist, author of Unforgetting, a memoir of family migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas. To see part one of our conversation that I did with Juan Gonzalez and Roberto, you can go to democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us. Je t'ai tant cherché, mon Seigneur, mon roi, je t'ai tant
Merci, mon Dieu, merci.